You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Live from Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York, I'm Caroline Hyde. And I'm Ed Ludlow right next door. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Cisco buying Splunk in a $28 billion deal that pushes it into AI. We'll bring you the terms of the deal and what it means for M&A. And from M&A to IPOs, we'll get a read on the state of the market with Jeff Thomas from NASDAQ as companies see their trading debut pop begin to fade. Plus, we'll bring you the latest in the media world. Rupert Murdoch steps down from the Fox and News Corp and writers and studios that are inching closer to a deal. All that and so much more ahead. Let's bring in Jim Fish, analyst at Piper Sandler, who has a neutral rating on Cisco, $57 price target. And ultimately, is this a good deal despite the amount that they're paying in terms of premium? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, first off. Uh, secondly, on, on your question here. Uh, look, Splunk had been, you know, a target for Cisco for a little while here. Back in January of 2022, uh, it was rumored that Cisco had made a offer at that point. Uh, now today you get the uh, conclusion of that or almost conclusion as we work through a nine to 12 month uh, deal cycle here on this one for it to close. But this is the name that we have pointed out for quite some time that is most strategic to Cisco. When you look at what Chuck Robbins and his team are trying to do uh, around AI cloud security, uh, this one just fits the bill. It really merges that world between app experiences that they call it with the security side and fills a big hole in the security portfolio that we've pointed out for a long time uh, in the uh, security incident and event management or SIM space. Uh, Splunk's the big 800-pound gorilla in that space, and it really is the backbone of security operations centers. And, and Cisco really needed that kind of backbone to really push the push the envelope a little bit more on its security business that's really been lagging against other security uh, peers out there in terms of a growth rate. So, so Chuck Robbins reckons this transaction is going to close in 9 to 12 months, and then Gary Steele, who is the CEO of Splunk, is going to join the executive team reporting to Chuck Robbins. You gave an excellent explanation there of what Splunk brings to Cisco, but, but have a second go at it. From, from a layman's perspective, uh, what is Splunk? What, what are we talking about here? 
Yeah, so it gets back to actually the name of Splunk. Really what Splunk is you know, named after is going spelunking, which is going cave diving. And in this case, it's going after essentially data, trying to understand your data and being able to search through it. So when you have a you know breach, for example, that you don't know about, but you yes. can kind of search through all of your data with Splunk's tools and be able to find you know what's actually going on inside your environment, which is why it's so important for your security operations center, as well as for an instant uh, response and management perspective. And, yes. and actually, while we talk about Splunk as a security tool, its foundation was actually on the IT operations side and sort of the performance management. So how is your network actually performing? How are, how are your applications performing, be it on-prem or in the cloud as, as we shift to you know, uh, an Azure AWS Google environment and, and being able to manage across the entire environment, not just you know, on-prem, and that's been a big shift for Splunk over the last few years here. Yeah, I knew that. We, we knew that, I was just checking. Um, <laughs> Jim, well, you're a smart guy, so no, I well, thank you. you know uh, I don't, I don't know much about that. Observability. Let, let me just ask you this: A regulator's going to let this one go through? I said Chuck thinks nine to twelve months. Yeah, it's, it's a question we're getting this morning. Um, we're actually we cover VMware as well, and that's been a fun one in terms of regulation. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd argue uh, a longer time period on that one. Look, I, I think you're starting to see things go through, even of VMware size. Um, for Cisco and Splunk, there's a little bit of overlap in terms of, for example, market share with the powerful combination of AppDynamics, Thousand Eyes, and now Splunk altogether. Um, but there really isn't much on the security side. And, and mm -hmm. so from the both the application experiences and the security businesses, while Splunk is a decent sized, I'm sorry, when, while Cisco is a decent sized player in each as well as Splunk, um, you know, the two of them combined are really still part of this really fragmented set of industries that there really isn't the antitrust uh, issue here in our view. What then of the competitive landscape, those that Splunk was up against? Datadog, based here in New York, I'm thinking Dynatrace as well. Datadog's actually under pressure some 3% today. Doesn't not make it more attractive? You know, it's interesting, right? Because M&A can be disruptive to um, the business being bought uh, and potentially act as a tailwind for competitors. Uh, look, I, I don't cover Datadog, that's covered by my peer, Rob Owens, but you know, Datadog itself um, has been doing good things in sort of cloud observability, and, and that's where essentially workloads are going, correct? Um, and is considered one of, if not the leaders in that observability space. But uh, when you kind of stack up what Splunk could do for Cisco, you know, it does make Cisco a more relevant competitor in this space, especially given Cisco has a huge reach, right? And Gary and, and Chuck talked about it on the call this morning where you know, about two thirds of Splunk is domestic and a third is international. Well, while Cisco has arguably the best go-to-market program out there and can really penetrate their roughly a million customers with, with Splunk's uh, offering. And so that could potentially box out a competitor yes. when, when you think about it. Uh, Jim Fish of Piper Sandler, just not just so good on the deal, but also where it fits in the landscape, also very kind about me. Thank you very much. Now, coming up on the show, we're going to turn from M&A to IPOs. Jeff Thomas, Executive Vice President 
of Nasdaq's corporate platforms is joining us next. Carrot. Meanwhile, look, let's just get a check-in on how these IPOs of the week are faring because Instacart actually still clinging to a gain over the last three days, but coming off well from that pop after its initial IPO. We're currently trading at 30.05, a tiny gain on the $30 pricing. But is that window remaining open? We'll keep an eye for you. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Just taking you over to a live event happening. The Bloomberg Global Credit Forum is underway in London. We've got panelists from KKR, Apollo, Barclays. They're all discussing at this very moment the rise of private credit. And if you want to be digging into that a little bit more, you can go to LiveGo on your Bloomberg terminal. But look, credit more broadly, Ed, is important to our viewers in technology, whether it happens yep. to be the public companies seeking to raise funds in the bond market and indeed the private companies. Yeah, look, cost of capital uh, is important to any technology company. It's a part of the balance sheet. But think back to May. Yeah. Apple and Meta returned to the blue chip US bond market, we get super excited. Haven't heard anything since. So <laughs> I just wanted to remind our audience, like tech companies in debt, pay close attention. Particularly when rates from the Treasury perspective are on the rise and whether in central bank really starts to impact the desire there. Meanwhile, exactly. I mean, this all comes in a global narrative when we're thinking, Ed, of the health of the 2023 IPO landscape at the moment. We're facing uncertainty after Arm and Instacart reverse gains after popping during their debut. So let's get a little take of Bloomberg's Abigail Doodle. He's here for more. Well, Caroline, it is really pretty interesting here because we did have of course, have the big IPO pops uh, last week for Arm and then earlier this week for both Instacart and uh, Clevio. Here's Arm, though, giving back uh, its first 24% gain, that first day pop, uh, down each subsequent day, overall uh, down about 1.7%. So it really raises the question, begs the question of whether or not this IPO window is healthy. In fact, if we take a look at both Arm and Cart, we are going to see over this time period, there's the Arm loss. But Cart actually uh, a small gain here, up four tenths of 1%, not so shabby. But what comes to mind for me, why I was initially questioning whether or not these pops were good enough, if we take a look at what happened back in the pandemic, we of course had Airbnb up 113%, Affirm up 64%, Bumble up uh, almost 100%, and then Posh up 142%. So the pops that we've seen uh, over the last two weeks, not quite as strong. 
Have we greased the IPO window? It's not entirely clear at this point. More needs to be seen for sure. You know, Shanali Bassett was on the show yesterday lamenting how that's it now, all the IPOs are done. We've covered them to death. There won't be any till Birkenstock, and she's really sad about it. That's not quite true, though, is it, Abby? Yeah, we. It's to be seen. It's good. It's going to have a lot to do with this macro. I mean, the macro environment right now relative to the Fed is not so great, and it's not also bad. Take a look at Clavio, still holding on to a gain of 5.3%. And I would also point to back in the day, there was a company that IPO'd, and in the first couple of months, we go into the Bloomberg terminal, this stock absolutely tanked uh, down. You can see here down uh, more than 50% in those couple of months. It came back in a big, big way, though, and at this point is up more than 700% since that IPO. Any uh, any takers on what this is and why these IPOs right now, maybe we shouldn't worry uh, too much. I wasn't around then. <laughs> okay, so it was Meta, Facebook. Ah, uh, the yeah. company so previously known as Facebook. Yes, previously known as Facebook at that time had a very, very fir cup, uh, difficult first couple of months. But if we take a look at what Facebook has done, Meta has done since that IPO, well, not so shabby at all, especially given last year's big plunge. It's really come back. So, you know, it's just too early to say what's going on with these IPOs at this That's point. That's why people say I'm a long-term investor. Yes, that is, a, that is a perfect chart for the idea of a long-term investor, not a trader. Uh, Bloomberg's Abigail Doolittle. The, the B Chartress name on point. Thank you so much. Okay, let's stick with the IPO market and bring in our next guest. Uh, it has been uh, a busy few days, right, Caro, with uh, three listings, some on the NASDAQ, some on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, let's go to the NASDAQ side of this story and bring in Jeff Thomas. And, and Jeff, uh, I, I want to start by asking you, you know, we say here on the Bloomberg Technology Show the euphoria of the IPO winding it, uh, opening up is, was short-lived. Is that your conclusion as well? I think, you know, companies look at the IPO as a moment in time. It's a financing event. It creates great opportunities for liquidity for their shareholders, creates an acquisition currency by their stock. So I don't think they get too hung up on exactly how their stock's trading day to day. If you look at what's happening this week, you know, we had kind of a hawkish pause by the Fed yesterday, where, again, they paused rates but had some hawkish overtones. So of course, that's going to drive the macro that's going to drive some of these stocks but when you look at the pipeline that we've got of some great companies lined up to get out to the market both in q4 and a really strong pipeline in the first half of next year i think there's still a lot of reasons to be optimistic the vix continues to be relatively low indices are still well up for the year and i think companies that raised capital back in 2020 and 2021 uh, are really some pretty healthy valuations they're going to need to go back and raise another round of capital. And so it'll be a choice. Do they want to raise that that capital privately or do they want to tap the public markets? And I think there's a lot of reasons to expect that many of them will come to the public markets. Uh, speaking to your colleague, Karen, last week on the day of the arm listing, Jeff, and when you're looking at 157 active S1s or F1 filings, how many of those companies that are eyeing the markets are going to have to use the playbook we've just seen, cornerstone investors, limited supply, to ensure you get that initial pop, given, well, Instacart is on the downside already? Well, look, I think it's all about kind of how you want to build your book. Companies are always going to want to have those long-term anchor investors. There's always going to be room for some companies that or some investors that are going to be short-term in nature. Mm -hmm. And that's because, honestly, when you look at the opening cross, where we're bringing together buyers and sellers for that all-important first trade through our technology called the IPO Book Viewer, the only people that can sell into that transaction are the people that got shares in the IPO. 
So there's, of course, going to be buyers that got fewer shares than they wanted. Those are going to be the ones that are looking to acquire more shares. And then you've got to have some sellers in there as well. That's why we see the stabilization agent sometimes taking an hour, two, even three hours to open these stocks, because a lot of times it's having to flush out the sellers and find people that are looking to unload the stock uh, in addition to all the long-term shareholders that they bring in through the IPO. Yeah, that was a key narrative that we're talking, well, this time last week around ARM. Jeff, I'm interested, therefore, as to who's coming in to want to be that demand, that marginal purchaser. Is it we're getting more retail? interest? Does it largely tend to be the institutions that are willing to take the risk right now? Yeah, I think it's really the institutional investors that are going to be the major major buyers of IPOs. You know, you kind of look at how the class of 2020 and 2021 performed. Um, obviously, a lot of those didn't turn out the way that the investors were hoping to. Now you come into this year, again, the indices are up, the volatility is low. They're going to be looking for ways to differentiate, and that means they're going to have to take some risk in terms of some new issues. So we see a lot of demand on the buy side. I think really what it is, it's the companies coming to market, the bankers kind of adjusting the valuations to match the expectations uh, of the market. And of course, that all important narrative around profitable growth and not just growth mm -hmm. at all costs. You know, I want to go back to something that Caroline pointed out, that if there is anything in common across the last week, it was the cornerstone investor, the small float, but I, I, I get what you just said about the, on the, the buyers, but these, some of these IPOs were like 10x oversubscribed. Mm. Why is there not the same 10x uh, demand three days of trading in? You know, I think there's always going to be buyers at different price levels. And again, what you have to remember here is that companies are laying out their vision for the future. They're saying, here's where we can get to in terms of revenue, in terms of earnings. And so the investors are going to be watching not just in the first few days after the IPO, but the first few quarters. And that's really what's going to determine the success of these companies is can they come out of the gate strong? Can they hit their numbers in the first few quarters? And I think that's really what's going to tell the story IPO market versus the first few days of trading. We were just talking about long-term investment theses <laughs> following on from the Meta listing years and years ago. Jeff Thomas, we thank you so much, Executive Vice President of NASDAQ's Corporate Platforms. All right, time for Talking Tech. First up, Japanese electronics company Toshiba is clearing a new path to go private. It received a $13.5 billion buyout from the Japan Industrial Partners Private Equity Fund, which now holds nearly 80% of all the company's shares. The deal paves the way for the fund to squeeze out the remaining shareholders and take full control of the company. And Google's considering dropping chipmaker Broadcom as a supplier of AI chips as soon as 2027. That's according to a report from the information. Apparently, Google executives has set out a goal earlier this year to move away from Broadcom after a standoff over the cost of its chips. However, in the last few minutes, Google has just issued a statement saying it sees, quote, no change in its relationship with Broadcom. Broadcom paired some of its stock declines. Plus, NVIDIA is betting on India's potential to become a key global market for AI. During a trip to the country earlier this month, CEO Jensen Huang visited multiple cities and met with leaders, including Prime Minister Modi. Caroline. Fascinating global perspective. Meanwhile, I mean, let's just stick on the world of artificial intelligence because this week we've had so much. Amazon, Google, both integrating more generative AI products into their offerings. Well, today we've got some similar news out of Microsoft. The company will start rolling out its AI assistant for Windows as soon as Tuesday. It will be widely available in the Office app starting November the 1st. This is for corporate customers. We're going to be bringing in now Rishi Jaluria. He's Managing Director of Software Equity Research over at RBC Capital Markets. Currently got an outperform rating on the shares of Microsoft and what does this just show you about the ability to integrate underlying technology largely coming from OpenAI that quickly into its own product offerings? 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Look, I think this shows us a couple things, right? It shows us that Microsoft isn't selling vaporware. The fact that there's a timeline on getting Windows Copilot out, uh, that's, as you mentioned, in five days. Um, the fact that we're talking 40 days until Office 365 Copilot comes out, uh, this is incredible timing. And contrast that with what we see elsewhere in enterprise software, Microsoft is clearly moving really quickly. Uh, what I think is, is two things that, that, that really come out to this for me. Number one is Microsoft is actually integrating all of these aspects. So your Office 365 Copilot talks to your Windows Copilot, talks to your uh, browser, talks to your Bing Copilot. So there's actually a very integrated generative AI experience across the entire Microsoft stack, which I think is incredible and, and really showcases the portfolio approach Microsoft has. The second thing is, you know, the question we have to ask is how is Microsoft able to move so fast? Remember, they have a huge head start versus anyone else because they invested in OpenAI going back to 2019. And you know, Microsoft was you know, deeply thinking about generative AI yeah. long before uh, ChatGPT became a household name you know, almost about a year ago. Yeah, Rishi, you pointed out they're integrating this into existing platforms. And Microsoft has always been really good at selling software that loads of others give away for free. So my question is, do they grow sales by doing this, by this investment in AI? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. There's going to be certain areas where you know they're not going to directly charge for generative AI. It's more going to be about gaining market share, like on the dynamic stack, right? But uh, if you think about Microsoft 365 Copilot, that is something that I believe they were distinctly charged for. A lot of these other um, open AI services, especially built on Azure, they get monetized indirectly through underlying storage and consumption um, because it's on a, on, on a consumption model. So I absolutely think this translates into better revenue numbers for Microsoft. And we're already seeing that, right? I mean, as much as we can talk about how Gen AI is still really early, remember Microsoft is already doing more than half a billion dollars of generative AI revenue two quarters after launching this. And that number is probably going to get to, you know, two, five, ten billion dollars mm. before we know it. Amy Hood really talking about how it's the second half of their fiscal year where this is going to ramp up. Rishi, great to have your analysis. Thank you so much. Rishi Jaluria, he's over Thank at you. RBC Capital Markets. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde. And I'm Ed Dudlow. Let's get a quick check on the markets. At a high level, it really is the Fed and economics that are driving these markets. Underperformance in tech, Nasdaq 100 down 1.3%. Yesterday, the Fed holds rates as expected. We get economic data on Thursday morning that just reinforces this idea that the Fed leaves rates higher for longer. But AI is also a story. When you think about specific movers on the Nasdaq 100, the two I'm looking at, Microsoft and Amazon. Actually, Microsoft has paired much of its gain after giving us those dates we just went over for the release of generative AI tools, Copilot and Office coming November 1st, now completely flat, flat as a pancake. But Amazon is really accelerating its declines, 3.5%. Fell yesterday as well after it announced its generative AI offering in the context of Alexa. We had Dave Limp, the outgoing devices chief on the show. It really didn't do much to persuade investors to buy into this stock right now. The idea that they've brought AI to their hardware offering, Caroline, that, of course, a big points drag on the Nasdaq 100 right now. 
And let's, meanwhile, of course, talk about how AI is interweaving itself into just about everything, including, of course, the, the discourse of leaders from around the world. They gathered right here in New York City this week for the 78th session of the UN General Assembly. And as they discussed the biggest issues facing the planet, yes, you've got climate change, yes, of course, you've got the war in Ukraine, but you've also been having more and more on tech and artificial intelligence. In fact, President Biden called on the world's countries to regulate artificial intelligence so that it doesn't so-called govern us as part of his speech at the assembly earlier this week. Meanwhile, former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, he actually sat down with our own David Weston and was talking about how AI perhaps ought to change government. The big real-world event is this technology revolution. And particularly with generative AI, it's going to change everything. It's going to change the way we live, the way we work. It should change government, by the way, the way government operates, the way public services operate. It's got enormous potential to change the healthcare system for the better. But then there are huge risks, because it's a general purpose technology. You can use it for bad as well as for good. Well, I mean, all of this comes as we prepare ourselves for the UK to host its first ever Global AI Safety Summit. It's coming in early November, convening international governments, industry experts. We understand Kamala Harris is going to be flying over for it. Let's just talk about all of the AI presence and UK's, well, focus on it. It's Joe White's with us, UK Tech Ambassador. And you're sat there in San Francisco, day-to-day -day role, really trying to export the UK to these big Silicon Valley giants, tech giants of the US, saying, look, this is what the UK has to offer. Why is the UK so focused on putting its stake in the ground when it comes to AI? Uh, ple pleasure to be here this morning. No, thank you. Um, the, UA, uh, the UK, like the US, is uh, one of the only leading economies which has some of these frontier AI labs. Uh, Google DeepMind being founded there more than uh, 10 years ago now, uh, the, uh, four of the top 10 global universities. We have an enormous base of talent and research around uh, AI as a sector. And I think Prime Minister Sunak really understands the importance of this. And uh, to a certain extent, the, the reason the AI Safety Summit is created as is, is to, in order to unleash the enormous potential of AI for positive change, both in the UK and around the world, getting some of those initial uh, guardrails and that common understanding globally is incredibly important to keeping us uh, safe with this technology as it develops. Joe, does the UK genuinely believe it has a leadership role in the field of AI? Or, or if you're honest with yourself, is the UK moving quickly to catch up? No, I think the UK genuinely does have a leadership position in this. As I said, a lot of the fundamental AI research has been done in uh, the UK's uh, extraordinary university base for years. Um, when Demis founded DeepMind, he did so in the UK. He was keen to keep it there. We're seeing now with OpenAI and Anthropic and others, when they open their first international offices, they're choosing the UK. The pool of talent there uh, is pretty extraordinary. And I think the UK has a, a, a quite a unique uh, global role as convener to bring together countries from across the world to talk about some of these major uh, risks and issues uh, while still having very much uh, its own position in the AI race with a lot of the companies and labs which are based in the UK. Well, exactly so. The race with the companies. You know, Cambridge One is one of the leading supercomputers in the world, built on NVIDIA DGX, largely for the healthcare use case. I'm really interested in your day-to-day, -day, Joe. I know that the UK is negotiating with the GPU makers. Have you yourself held talks with NVIDIA or AMD and Intel to secure the compute for the future work the UK hopes to do in the field of AI? Well, we field a, a number of visitors here. We've actually got the Chancellor here this week uh, who's engaging across the West Coast in San Francisco, uh, LA, and then Seattle. And so we do talk with uh, you know, both the big cloud providers as well as the big chip uh, suppliers uh, to talk about uh, the UK's needs. And of course, we're looking to increase the amount of compute capacity that we have in the UK. Uh, 
the Chancellor committed to about £900 million for an AI supercomputer, which was announced in the last budget, as well as the AI task force, which is now having a specific GPU cluster built for AI safety research. Jeremy Hunt was fielding a fair few questions on China and the fact that the UK has decided to invite the Chinese delegation to this AI safety summit, Joe. Do you defend that decision as well? I think AI will be a global uh, uh, both benefit and challenge, and I think it's a technology which, which will be relatively borderless. And so I think the UK recognizes that uh, for us to get the kind of benefits that we want, we also have to have a baseline of technology. And uh, the Foreign Secretary confirmed earlier this week that we have, in fact, invited China uh, to the summit. Uh, it, it's, it's now uh, for them to determine uh, you know, who they will send and how they will engage. But I think there are common issues that we can all agree on. And I think, again, this is where the UK has uh, a great space as convener to bring different parties together to get that initial baseline. I think it's interesting that Nick Clegg's also been invited. I was with him yesterday having a discussion about the future of AI regulation and he almost called it a frenzy of everyone trying to be hosting these discussions, AI summit with the UK. You've got the G7 meeting in November 2 in Japan, the Hiroshima AI process as they call it. You've just had government here in the United States convening the most powerful AI CEOs plus civil society. Is this just like a rush of discussion but nothing actually happening? Well, no, the UK is in, in, in touch with all the organizers of, of these events and sees the safety summit very much as building on these pieces. Uh, when uh, 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 Sunak agreed this with Biden back in, in, in June for the UK safety summit, uh, it was really based on the existing White House commitments. And so we're not trying to diverge from these things. And uh, the specific focus of the safety summit, which is on the frontier risks, uh, AI poses both short, medium and long-term challenges, let's say. Um, and the specific ones that the summit is looking at is things like the uh, uh, risks posed by frontier models, things mm. like biosecurity and so on. But this will really build on the commitments made to the White House and, and in some ways demonstrate how these are being operationalized by the companies now. It's all coming back to regulation. And actually, where does the UK sit within that, Joe? You're sort of trying to straddle a relatively easy regulation as the global world tends to view the US. You've got stricter EU pushing through regulation very quickly. But then you think of the CMA, dare I say it, flip-flop on Activision Blizzard. I'm thinking of new digital competition rules coming in, Joe. How do these big tech companies view the UK's regulation? Well, I think the UK has a real strength in, uh, in its regulators. I think the UK is, is widely seen as having sensible, engaged, proportionate regulation. We do, of course, have independent regulators. So uh, as the Chancellor was saying, you can't always uh, get the regulators necessarily to do what they want from a political perspective. That's, in fact, a, a, a feature, not a bug. Um, but I think the, the UK's history, process of law, engagement, and you saw this with our AI white paper published earlier in the year, we're not standing up a different uh, body for AI regulation, but in in fact, get our existing regulators, whether across health or education or broadcast, to look at the specific AI challenges within their sector, uh, and therefore you get the expertise uh, and the ability to, to adapt within that. So the, the UK does see AI as one of those areas that needs that ongoing iterative conversation with regulators, but not where we need to create prescriptive rules, which may, may, may ch uh, turn out to be um, out of date quite quickly. You know, Joe, I, I get the UK is, is developing a position on AI, and you have an outgoing message, but you're in San Francisco and you're talking to tech, you're talking to your allies, what is the biggest question you get from them, the inbound, about what the UK can offer? Well, I think folks really do see the UK as the first natural um, 
expansion point from the US. Often we're going to, to Europe, uh, uh, UK is still the first place that is chosen to go into. And we've had this conversation recently with, uh, uh, we saw Andreessen Horowitz announce their new uh, uh, office outside the US in the UK uh, during London Tech Week earlier. And so I think folks really do continue to see the UK as the first natural choice externally. They're fascinated in the regulatory environment. They do see the UK as having a, a fantastic tech sector. Uh, it's only third tech sector now valued at more than a trillion dollars, uh, more, more unicorns in the UK than France, Germany and the Nordics combined. And so they recognize that talent, they recognize uh, the uh, regulatory uh, adaptability that's there. And so they're very keen to understand how the UK is going to continue to develop uh, its position there. Joe White, UK Tech Ambassador. Really, really appreciate having you here on Bloomberg Technology out at SF. Pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, coming up here on the show, AI co-pilots are all the rage. We're going to be joined by Duck Bill co-founder Megan Joyce and Forerunner Ventures' Kirsten Green for more on that conversation next. Some exciting news coming from those two. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Ah, the joy of the idea of a tech-driven personal assistant. It's long kind of been a bold ambition of Silicon Valley. You've got Siri, Alexa, even TaskRabbit to do the physical. But with recent AI advancements, there's a personal assistant that perhaps could be actually the next level and around the corner. Now, this is what Duckbill is promising. It's an AI-powered personal assistant tackling consumers' to-do lists. The company has recently come out of stealth. They've just raised yet another round of money, $25 million Series A, and it's being led by Forerunner Ventures. We're very pleased to welcome, therefore, Forerunner's founding partner, Kirsten Green. has also been joined by on, on the board of Duckbill. She's going to be alongside Duckbill CEO and co-founder Megan Joyce. Megan, Kirsten, it's great to have you both with us. And Megan, I start with you because, boy, have we got a day of talking of these assistants basically co-pilots. Microsoft announcing their Microsoft 365 co-pilot 2. They're also being run and built on OpenAI's underlying foundational models. What makes yours different? So what makes Duckbill unique is the fact that we combine two things. 
the best of expert humans who add the personal touch and nuance to your tasks, along with AI tooling that allows efficiency and breadth and scale of the underlying legwork. So Duckbill's personal assistants are assigned to tasks and they use custom-built AI tooling that leverage existing large language models with our own fine-tuning and retrieval augmented generation to fulfill tasks. And what that allows us to do is to actually tackle the long tail of to-dos and the tasks you dread most end-to-end, -end, including what AI can handle and where AI bumps up against limits and the, a human can take the baton. Kirsten, to that point, you must be bombarded with companies yeah. offering AI services. You have made the name really of Forerunner Ventures backing some really, well, companies that blew out in terms of the consumer. How is Duckbill setting itself apart? Why write this check? Thank you for the question. So, you know, I think, as you mentioned, there are, a, there's a, a tremendous amount of activity in the AI space right now. The venture industry is rightfully, I think, really excited about AI. It represents a major leap for technology. There really are two major ways that AI's you know, companies are approaching AI. One is the architect architecting the foundation um, for AI and the industry. And the other is really implementing and using AI to deliver business efficiencies or better and even all new products and services. And Duckbill really falls into the latter. So this notion of a digital assistant has really been on people's minds for a long time. We've heard about it over the years. If only I could have help with my to-do list, if only I could manage my busy life, I'd never see the bottom of my to-do list. The first generation of offerings like Siri and Alexa, they were delivering some value along those lines, um, but I don't think they've scaled anywhere near to kind of what the most ambitious uh, hope was for the, the potential there. And AI really changes all of this. And in the case of Duckbill, um, as Megan referenced, the integration of AI and the human in the loop um, offers the ability to contextualize discovery and execution. Um, and that really feels like it changes the game for the consumer in, in making an offer offering like an AI assistant or an, a digital assistant valuable. Yes. Um, and it, it enables a business model that we think is scalable and compelling. So there's days I wake up, you know, my wife's left a post-it note on the fridge where she just stuck it to my forehead and I think, if only That's I love. could do those things. <laughs> but here's the thing, duck bill, Megan, is $99 a month. How do you arrive at that? So we've found over the course of our year-long beta that that's the price point at which we can support unlimited tasks for the vast majority of users. And it, it we look at it as the uber black version of what Duckbill is today, moving towards a more mass market product built on the learnings of that premium offering. And so what we are excited about is continuing to serve more and more people with that premium price point subscription and learning from that to eventually serve the people who need it most, who are the mass market, the people who cannot afford a personal assistant, but deserve help just like anybody else. From mass and by continuing... No, 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 sorry to jump yeah, in, Megan. I, I mean, I find that business concept fascinating. Uber Black to the mass market model. You needed the funds to do that. And Kirsten, coming out of stealth with this kind of money, that's a lot. And it's interesting you're going to take a board seat. What are you going to be advising Megan to do in the next few months as they get off the ground? 
Well, certainly one of the most compelling parts of the investment was the opportunity to work with Megan, who is an experienced executive and in many ways has led companies in similar endeavors uh, related to Duckbill. So um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning with her and from her. But, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the question was posed about this is a consumer product. This is about delighting a consumer, meeting, make, meeting a customer's need resonating with the consumer. Um, I certainly hope that our years of experience in living in the heads of consumers and working with some great founders that brought products that have become ubiquitous to life um, is something we can do here at Duckbill also. Um, I think as Megan articulated, like Uber Black, you know, Duckbill Black is the start, um, but the vision really is to to reach mass audiences and um, and help people navigate their lives and, and the internet um, more effectively. It's interesting, and I, and, Megan. You know, I'd love to mention for a moment just yeah. this idea of like reimagining search and Duckbill really um, leading the way, or something like Duckbill leading the way in that. Like search really hasn't been reimagined for 20 years. Um, it's been a blank page with a bar, um, or it's been an ad-led query field. And I do think that you know the companies that brought us those services are incredibly well resourced with really smart people around the table, and they're also thinking about AI making their products. And services better, but their business models rely on ads, and um, they, in many ways, that's not customer aligned. And I do think there's a chance here for a company, for Duckbill, to take on this idea of being an entry point to the internet yeah. and contextualizing search and discovery and execution. We've referenced a fair few times, Megan, your experience. You, of course, were helping grow Uber, GM of, of US and Canada. You're at Oscar Health as well. You know how to build. Is this money going to be put towards talent? Are you going to be ferociously trying to take that talent from the search OGs who aren't quite reimagining things quickly enough? So we've learned an enormous amount over the course of the past year operating in, operating in beta. And what this funding will allow us to do is take the roadmap that we've laid out for the next few years and really accelerate it. You know, our mission is to serve that mass market, to leverage AI, to help ensure that the rising tide lifts all boats and that it's not just the privileged who are benefiting from AI or benefiting from help, but that everyone has access to it. And we will be investing deeply and quickly to get to that mission even faster over the coming months and years. All right, Forerunner Ventures founding partner Kirsten Green backing Duckbill CEO and co-founder Megan Joyce. Thanks to you both. The Authors Guild, the country's oldest and largest organization representing writers and authors, sued OpenAI for copyright infringement. They allege that the company's large language models engage in, quote, systematic theft on a mass scale. They filed the proposed class action alongside over a dozen well-known authors like George R.R. Martin and John Grisham. An OpenAI spokesperson said in a statement the company believes writers and authors should, quote, benefit from AI technology and that they're optimistic they will continue to find mutually beneficial ways to work together. Caroline. 
Well, look, we're just hearing what the writer of Game of Thrones was thinking about in his current iteration. But look, we go from those sorts of writers to the Writers Guild of America and a group representing major Hollywood studios. They would meet, of course, for a second day, we understanding an encouraging sign. Talks are progressing in this pretty long labor standoff that has lasted for months. Sources say executives from Disney, Netflix, NBC, Warner Brothers, Discovery, they took part in these talks. Let's get out to Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw. And I mean, we've had a few false starts. Any light at the end of the tunnel here? Yeah, I think real light at the end of the tunnel. You know, they they last had substantive conversations in August. Uh, the studios offered a proposal that I think made some real advances. The writer said it wasn't enough, and then they sort of broke and, and couldn't make any progress. The studios have made yet another offer on, on Wednesday, and they meet this morning, Thursday morning, where the, the writers are expected to counter. And how the negotiation or conversation today goes, I think, will determine a lot. You know, if, if they are, make progress, I think we could see a deal relatively quickly. If they don't, then who knows? Uh, Lucas, huge news in the media landscape was, well, not surprising really, but Rupert Murdoch stepping down as chairman of boards for both Fox and News Corp. Lachlan Murdoch taking the chair of News Corp. Just, just talk us through this process and what we've learned. I mean, look, we're watching the, the slow but inevitable handoff from Rupert, one of the great media moguls of our, of our age, whatever you, you think of him, to his son, Lachlan, who has been taking on more and more responsibility at the company. I mean, I don't think this is, it is, it is huge news, but not shocking news. You know, Rupert Murdoch is, is in his 90s. Um, there have been kind of constant rumors about his health, but nothing confirmed. You know, I think people close to him would probably say that he's doing just fine. Um, and so he's he's giving his son more and more of a, of a presence at the company. Succession in real life. Lucas Shaw, brilliant. Thank you very much for keeping us up to speed with it. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. You can recap this episode on our podcast, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcast card. Meanwhile, look, we want to send it back to the Bloomberg Global Credit Forum. It's underway in London. And in fact, Joshua Easterly is now speaking. He had some interesting things to say about the downfall of SVB earlier in the year. Now, remember, he's a co-CIO and co-president at Sixth Street. Just take a lesson in. A lot of those industries have those dynamics. Um, but I think, again, going to back to recoveries, I think, and defaults, I think private credit has real two advantages. One is that they have the ability to industry tilt uh, and active manage. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, is that the documents tend to be tighter and the recoveries tend to be higher because there's less on the margin flexibility for asset liability management trades for the sponsor and less lender on lender violence. Um, so I, I think private credit has ways to win that are significant structural ways to win between industry tilt and that, the, the dynamics in private credit that I think should you know, prove well. So you think maybe as a, on a return basis and that, that this works well with our, our poll question. What will perform best over the next 12 months? High yield bonds, leveraged loans, CLOs, private credit, or distressed debt? You have a story career in distress. Do you really think distress might be the, the, the play for the next 12 months, or do you have a different view? Uh, look, we, we have this the great thing about one of the advantages that Sixth Street has as a $75 billion asset manager is we have a whole bunch of windows and markets. Mm -hmm. And we're in basically all these markets from structured credit, um, a little bit in high yield, leveraged loans, obviously private credit, uh, uh, distressed uh, on a cycle basis. 
And the one thing I would say about distressed is, is that I, I think that that market today, um, if you really think about distressed in a narrow way, which is buy a bond or buy a bank loan, own the equity on the other side, I think prices in distress are not really reflective of the environment we're in today. They're artificially too high. Mm. Um, and when you think about what the, CL, the bank loan market, today, I think CLOs own, you know, there's a billion seven of CLOs. There's really no new inventory. They have to be fully invested. And so there's really not any real price transparency or forced selling. And so I think artificially, structurally, bank loan prices are high. You've seen that. You see the tails get a little bit wider, but you've seen the average bank loan price go from 94 to 97. The tails get a little bit larger from under 70, I think from 3% to 6%. But they're not really, they're not really, there's not really distressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you overlay the asset liability uh, flexibility that sponsors and issuers have on those capital structures recoveries in Broadly syndicated loans have been quite poor. Yes, really. And really. so, you know, you buy something at 70, you wake up, there's an asset there's an asset liability trade that gets done where a whole bunch of collateral is stripped out, your loan trades down 50 points. So I just don't, I, I'm not sure I see the clear opportunity in, in, in distress today, um, given there feels like a technical uplift on prices and there's a lot of flexibility in those documents that create a lot of liquidity options for the issuer. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.